journeyed toward the territory of Nagel, between the Kadesh and Shur. He sojourned in Gerir, and Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerir, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself say, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, and male servants and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For when the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. Um, take a few minutes and greet one another. We're going to dismiss children to our kids area. Make sure that you check them in. And in five minutes, we will be back.
Alright, as you guys take your seats, if you need a Bible, I'll remind you that we have copies of uh, God's Word on, at the back on the wooden table if you would like. Um, that's our gift to you. Feel free to grab one of those, take them home with you, um, bring it back next week, um, and, uh, and continue to explore it throughout your time outside of um, our gathering together. Uh, we are this morning in Genesis chapter uh, 20, and um, this will be the last week that we're in Genesis for a little bit, as we will next week uh, begin uh, observing the season of Advent. Um, that is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And so um, we're at a really great place. I was having a conversation with someone last week, and I mentioned how, um, I think it might have been Walt. I think Walt and I might have been running, and I was thinking about this, about how um, really, you know, we extended out Genesis 19 for a while. We won't talk about what happened, right, with all of that. Um, but um, as we come into chapter 20, and we look ahead to chapter 21, where we will be as we come out of Advent, we will be um, there observing the birth of Isaac. And so we're really at a great place to, uh, to kind of like take a break for the season of Advent. And so I'm excited about Genesis 20. I'm excited about beginning Advent um, with you all next week. And so um, let's be in Genesis 20 well this morning as we prepare to go into this next season. Um, we are going to talk a lot this morning about faith, uh, about sin's effect, and about grace. We're going to look at, um, from Genesis chapter 20, a faith that is active in the wrong direction. In fact, I, I kind of wrestled with how to best understand and communicate this to you guys. It's almost faith and inactive faith, but it's not as though it's a faith that it's an, an inactive. It's a faith that is actively working in um, an undesirable direction. Okay, and so that's what we're going to be, we're going to be kind of beginning with in just a moment. Faith active in the wrong direction. Do we think about faith that way? I kind of was wrestling with this myself this past week. Um, do we think about faith that way? Faith being active and faith being active in the wrong direction. I think a lot of times I think of it as inactive, but in actuality it's going um, the wrong direction. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, that's number one. Number two, we're going to talk about sin's effects. Um, and then finally, we're going to talk about God's undeserved mercy and grace observable all through this story. So typically, here's what we do. We typically begin um, in like verse 1, and we just kind of work through this story, like sequentially. This morning, we're going to do it a little bit different. Although we are going to begin in verse 1, we will kind of bounce around a little bit. And so um, make sure that you keep your Bibles open. Okay, we're constantly referencing God's Word. We are not like reading, and okay, that was fun now back to me, right? Like, that's not what we're doing here. So stay um, in the Word, and we'll um, kind of point out the kind of shifts in direction as we, um, as we go through. In verse 1, let's begin in verse 1. I think this is a great place for us to start. In verse 1, we get a great picture of this type of faith that we've already dialogued a little bit about that is actually active in the wrong direction. And so I'm going to draw a lot today. I'm just feeling, feeling good, okay? And so um, this is, this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, and so here's, here's kind of what happens, right? I think, and I'm going to leverage this part because this is all we can erase. So um, we've got this, this moment. We've got 
um, like this, this genesis of faith, right? That's what this dot symbolizes and represents. And then we see that there is a life of faith. Similarly, as we just observed through baptism, are you committing to living a, a, a life of repentance and a life of faith? This is what the Christian life looks like, okay? Now, what I think I oftentimes have considered, and I think Genesis 20 has challenged me a little bit on this, or maybe just made clear some things that were kind of already just bouncing around in my skull, right? Um, is that you begin in this, there's this genesis of faith, and then there's this life of, of faith, and through that, we'll jump back over here. This is what we've been talking about over recent weeks. There is this process of, um, of growth, this process of being transformed into the image of Christ that God is committed to working in us. Right? Like, that's what the Christian life looks like. We have, like, justification, and then we have, um, these are theological terms, right? Justification, that is that we are, we are saved. We are, made, um, we are made righteous before the Lord, not because of anything that we have done, but all because of who Christ Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf. And our faith in him, right? Our confidence in him, our confession of him, right? This is, this is what brings justification about. And then we proceed into this life of sanctification, and that's this, right? That's this whole process, this transforming into the image of Christ. And then ultimately we arrive at glorification, right? And we kind of observe a bit of that every week as we come to the table and we look forward to um, this, this new uh, and, and perfect intimate relationship with God one day um, in which we are absent of sin, we are existing in a glorified state, and we enjoy perfect friendship and fellowship with him forever. It's really stellar. Like, this is what we believe, and this is what we like, and we talk about it a lot. And so here's kind of where we've been. Now, let's jump back into Genesis 20 for just a moment, okay? Genesis of faith, life of faith, progression, and then there's this thing at the end, right, that we talked about over here. Only, oftentimes, there are, um, like, these, these off paths, right? They're, they're, we know what this looks like. Like, we've probably experienced this. You probably have in your own life. There are really sweet seasons, right? There's really sweet seasons in which we can look back and we can go, yes, there was an, an active faith in my life that was producing growth into the image of Christ by God's grace. There was um, just wonderful Acts 2 type relationship and community within the church. There is commitment to mission outside of the church. Really sweet seasons. Are we connecting with this? Now, there are also seasons that are what? Not so sweet, right? Challenging, difficult seasons, not just in terms of our circumstance, but perhaps in terms of, like, the activeness of our faith. Like, are we truly, like, living what we say we believe? Are we truly living in light of, of who Christ is and what he has done to rescue us from our sin? Are we living, like, like regenerate lives? Are we living lives that reflect the transforming power of the gospel in us? There are times in which we don't, right? Now, that doesn't mean that our faith ceases. It just oftentimes means that it's working in a direction that it ought not be, right? Maybe we're putting faith on hold for a moment, and we're going, okay, like, I know that I'm called to live a life of faith, and there are even seasons and examples I can reflect back on and say, yep, that's what that kind of looked like, and that was great. But there are also seasons in which we go, faith is really hard right now. Right, like faith is really difficult, and as a result, we oftentimes find ourselves like going, like going off, right? Just like kind of wandering, right? Like, like, um, like Judah, right? Judah was up here, my little boy. He took his shoes off, 
and then this was during baptism. I don't know if you saw this. It was really awesome. And then he okay, wandered over here. Like, he just wandered, starts wandering around, right? Like, we kind of do that sometimes. We just take our shoes off and we start walking and wandering around. We observe that taking place here in Genesis chapter 20. We're, we're observing a, a faith that is active, but it's a faith that's active in the wrong direction. Let's, let's look at verse 1. And let's be clear about this as we come into verse 1, that that is, that is undesirable, right? Like a faith that is actively working in the wrong direction is an undesirable position for God's people. We all would say that. We have to affirm that. That's like foundational. We have to affirm that, that that is, that that is indeed undesirable. Let's look at verse 1. We have in the beginning like Abraham like journeying. Like there's this, there's this movement, there's a tracing of, of, of geological, uh, of geographical like movement. And then we come to this point in which in verse 2, Abraham says of Sarah his wife while sojourning through Greer that she is his sister. And he says this for a really specific reason that comes out later later on, um, but he, he, he says this, um, and as a result, Abimelech, the king of Greer, took Sarah, right? And so he's like, okay, well, um, Sarah then is single, right? Okay, and so like, I will take Sarah, like she is desirable, I will have her for myself. So, what do we observe in verse 1 as we consider this faith active in the wrong direction? In verse 1, we observe a lie. That's another way that we can say it, right? We observe a lie stemming from what I believe to be any number of human emotions that make it possible for you and I to empathize with Abraham. Our our tendency initially might be to read verse 1 and go, okay, you just just lied. This is is so um, not what we were hoping to see from you, Abraham. But you just lied and... Um, now we're left asking, what are we to what are we to do with this? We're a bit upset, perhaps, in Abraham's decision, and um, maybe a little bit a little bit hard on Abraham. But I think if we consider the human emotions behind the decision that is made, you and I are able to connect with some of these very same emotions that oftentimes lead us into this very same response. Does that make sense? In fact, I think it would be helpful if we start our conversation here, right? That we start a conversation around the emotions that lead into this particular sin response from Abraham that demonstrates a faith that is active in the wrong direction so that we can best grasp the deeper issues going on in and with Abraham so that we, right, you and and I can lean into our own sin and respond appropriately. Now, what is the appropriate response to sin? Repentance. Absolutely. Amen. Like, we are committing to, as Christians, a life of repentance. If you're here and you're in this room and you're skeptical about the Christian faith and you're not really altogether sure what that means or looks like, know that it is not this moment in which repentance is expressed followed by a life that is totally absent of repentance. That is not what the Christian life looks like at all. And so for you and I, as we observe what is um, here in Genesis chapter 20, and we see these emotions in Abraham that lead to a sinful response, that shine light on our own sinful responses, as we find ourselves in a similar emotional state, our natural response ought to be, as God's people, repentance, right? Confession, 
right? An acknowledgement of a lack of faith, a lack of trust at certain times and in certain seasons, and a desire for the Lord to extend compassion as he is faithful to do while strengthening us for this, right? This life ahead. Give us strength. This is not, let's just be clear. Is this cool? Let's be clear that we do not live this in our own strength. What we're talking about, a faith that is active, not active in the opposite direction, but is, is, is submitting oneself to the desires of the Lord for a redeemed individual, for a child, a son, or a daughter of the king. Repentance and a life of active, a life of active faith. Abraham's lie is frustrating if we're really honest. It's frustrating because we're coming out of Genesis 19, having observed certain wicked behavior from just about every character in the story, Lot, his wife, his daughters. We observe a struggle of faith that leads us longing to return to Abraham's place in the narrative. Only as we do in Genesis chapter 20, we find that he too immediately struggles. He struggles with what? Well, here are a few things that I think you and I can relate with that help us to best understand this very unsweet response from Abraham in Genesis chapter 20 that I think that we can relate to. What oftentimes leads to fear? Let's be clear that it is fear that leads to Abraham's response. How do we know that? Well, because later in the story, he is confronted by Abimelech who says, wait a second, like you um, lied. Right? Essentially, like you said something that was that was untrue, and then we get around some of the logistics of the truth in it, and it was more of a twisting, and we go, no, right? Like, like this was this was not good. This was not the desirable response. This was a, a lie from Abraham to Abimelech, designed to what? To mislead, right? So that so that he would indeed be um, saved, right? That he would be saved. There's this concern. That's expressed later on as we continue our way through the story from Abraham that if he were honest, if I was honest about my relationship with my bride, given that there is no fear of God in this land or in this people, then what would happen? Well, harm, ill will, right? Things would not go well for me. And thus, I'll just lie. What are some emotions that, that lead to our deeper understanding of what's going on here? Well, fear. Right? We've already mentioned that. How about uncertainty? Right? Like a degree of uncertainty. There's no, there's no fear of God in this land, and so um, I'm not altogether sure what will happen to me if they observe um, my wife, who is desirable, and they, you know what I mean? Like this whole thing plays out this way, right? Although maybe there is a degree of certainty. It's just certainty that he's, like, going to be harmed, right? Or, or imprisoned or something Something is going to to happen to him as a result of his relationship with his wife, being honest about this. Speculation, maybe another one. Doubt, certainly selfishness. These are human emotions that, that lead into the type of response observable from Abraham in Genesis chapter 20. And these are emotions that are observable in you and I that lead to similar type responses. Because at the core, we're talking about what? We're talking about a distrust of God. 
That's what we're talking about. Like, as we take Genesis chapter 20 and we hold it out like an onion, right? And we just begin to peel the layers back. And wow, look at, look at this. Human emotions, right? Fear, concern, lie, doubt, uncertainty. As we get to the, the core issue of what's going on as we enter into this story, we can say that it all flows ultimately from a lack of faith. A lack of faith specifically in the sovereignty of God. Abraham's view of God and his understanding of his character and his nature, who he is and the way that he works, fuels his response Sinful response, observable here in Genesis 20. And so I, I want to spend just a few minutes unpacking this seesaw, <laughs> right? I want to spend just a few minutes talking through this seesaw up here, and I want to explain this a little bit. Okay, I want us to imagine Abraham's life and, and our life existing on, on this, this, this teeter-totter. Now, how do teeter-totters work, right? You, you have these, these weights on, on either side, and if you have like a, an equally balanced weight, it makes it easier for a, like a, this number to go on, right? But if you have unequally balanced weight, what happens? Well, maybe this, this person over here just kind of floats a few feet off of the ground while this person is like way up in the air most of the time, and it just kind of, there's this balancing that takes place, right? Are you understanding? Teeter-totters here. This is an exposition of teeter-totters, all right? Everyone get this, okay? So here's where we kind of begin. We understand that and like gravity and how that works. Okay, stellar. Let's move on. Okay, I want us to, to understand on one side of, of this teeter-totter, we have a vision of self, and I want us to understand how on the other end of this teeter-totter, we have a vision of God. And there are certain things, there are certain attributes, characteristics that are listed under each of these. Okay, so when we talk about vision of self, what are we, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about some things, certain things, like we confessed in the beginning of our time together this morning, right? We talked about our need, right? We, we confess our weakness, right? There's this acknowledgement, Right? As we consider who we are, informed by not what culture has to say, but what God's word has to say, we say we are naturally like weak. Our flesh is weak. Anybody ever said that before? Oh, flesh, weak, right? Our flesh is weak. Our flesh is oftentimes what? Foolish. Right? We are, take this view of yourself, oftentimes foolish. Has anybody ever been told that before? That was really foolish. Maybe you've said that to yourself. I know I have. That was a really foolish decision. Weak, foolish, and lastly, sinful. Like this is our view of self. This is who we are. We are, we are naturally weak. We are oftentimes foolish, and we are certainly sinful. Now, this is what God's word has to say. Remember, we are going through this, this beautiful narrative of the beginnings, of, of everything. Now, has humanity always been this way? No, right? No, we, we, we haven't. Well, we have, but humanity hasn't because we can go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and we can see that humanity was not created weak, foolish, and sinful. 
Right? But, but humanity willingly and willfully entered into, right, uh, turning from the Lord and turning to evil, desiring a knowledge that was outside of themselves that they have been being protected from in order to embrace a knowledge of these things, sin and foolishness and, and weakness, to know what that is. Right? So have we always been here? No. Is this where we currently are? And the answer is yes, Right? This is our view of self. Now I want us to come over here. I want us to explore for just a moment a view of God. What is our view of God? Here we go. Right, we, we understand based on this, right, the, the, redemptive, the redemptive story, God's word to his people, inerrant and infallible. We believe that about God's word, that it is without error and that it is incapable of being wrong, that it is perfect, right, and that it is this the story in which God reveals himself and his mission, his plan, and his purpose to a people. Not only like what he's doing, but where we are going, right? God is sovereign. Right? He's, he's sovereign. He is, he is powerful. He is in complete control. He does as he pleases. He does as he wills. We believe this about God. We believe that God is wise. Now, do we understand how these work? These are almost like counters, aren't they? Like weakness and sovereignty. Like those are almost like two opposite ends of the spectrum, aren't they? Like the opposite of weakness would be sovereign, right? powerful. The opposite of foolish would be wise. The opposite of sinful is holy, right? These are things that we believe about God. Are we good with this? Raise your hand. Yes, amen, amen. We are good with this. We are weak, foolish, and sinful. God is sovereign, wise, and holy. Now, why are we spending so much time talking about this? Because what we observe in Genesis chapter 20 here in verse 1 is is this getting off kilter. Here's what we need to understand. We need to, to understand that this is where we ought to be. This is where we want to be. We should all go home and take bars of soap and draw this on our bathroom mirrors. Right? As a reminder of where we desire to be. But oftentimes what happens is, and we see this in Genesis chapter 20, is a view of self begins to go up. I'm going to give us a different, a different color here. Uh, our view of self begins to go up. That is our own power, our own strength, our own wisdom, our own holiness. Now, again, remember, we talked to Teeter Totter 101 about five minutes ago. What happens as one end goes up? The other end goes down, doesn't it? Right? The other end naturally goes down. And so, if we take this elevated view of self, right, and begin to, and begin to move ourselves up, what then naturally happens to our view of God? It goes down, right? Like it has to, right? That's the, way that it, that's the way that it works. That's the way that this whole thing is connected. Here in Genesis chapter 20, we are observing Abraham elevating a view of self and as a result speaking towards this de-elevation of his view of God. How do we know that? Well, because Abraham decides to take things into his own hands, doesn't he? He enters into this city and he observes, based on what we read earlier on, Abraham said, this is in verse 11, I did it as he is confronted by Abimelech, which we'll talk about in just a few moments. He's confronted by Abimelech. Hey, bro, why the lie? Like this led to a lot of chaos, a lot of 
turmoil, a lot of difficulty for me and for my people. And so why, why the issue? Why the lying? Verse 11, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Now, what did we observe in Genesis chapter 19? You and I have um, some, some insight that assists our approaching of Genesis chapter 20. In Genesis chapter 19, Lot exits his home, right, and offers the angry mob desiring to know his heavenly guests within, his daughters. He he seeks to take control of the situation, right? And as a result, we see that there is a degree of calamity that ensues. The heavenly guests, of course, step in and they blind those outside. We spent probably five or six, seven minutes talking about this last week. And they just begin groping, exhausting themselves, searching for the door. What do we see in Genesis chapter 19? We observe power, right? We observe power outside of, like, our comprehension. What do we observe here in Genesis chapter 20? Well, we observe yet again another questioning of the power of the Lord. Right? Allow, allow me to take uh, matters into my own hands, right? Here's the situation as we, uh, as we see it. It's bleak. There's no fear of God here, right? And as a result, I am afraid. I'm afraid of what will happen to me when these individuals desire to take for themselves my wife. Let's just get rid of Abraham. Let's lock Abraham up. Let's kill Abraham. And so in an effort to sustain, right, to save his own life, seeing this elevated view of self as though it's his job to do that, there is a natural de-elevation of his view of God. This is the way that it works. Are we connecting with this? I don't know about you, but I think that there are times and, and moments, maybe let's even like narrow it down, there are moments in which I am guilty of this same thought. And if you are at all familiar with yourself, then you would say that there are moments in which you find yourself in this exact position as well. Only, I don't know that I ever like really considered the connection between these two, that as one goes up, the other must go down. Now, we're going to talk about how the Lord redeems this. There is a redeemed view of self, right? We understand that we are, that we are worms. We understand that we are naturally wicked, that our flesh is sinful, and that it is a daily struggle. However, we also recognize that we are created in the image of God, that we are created in the image of God, and that we are surrounded by others who are created in the image of God. Within this story, there appears to be a disconnect within both of these spheres, right? View of self has been elevated by Abraham. And as a result, his view of God has gone down. But even beyond that, his view of others seems to have gone down. Let's continue on the story and let's seek to, to understand this a little bit more clearly. Abimelech, the king, I'm in verse 2 here. Uh, the king of Greer sent, um, sent and took Sarah. Verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Truth is brought to light, but it's not brought to light by Abraham. Who brings it to light? 
God does, right? Like God brings sin to light. He exposes it, right? He exposes Abraham's lie. Verse 4. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, this is incredible. Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was who? I, who kept you from sinning against me. It was, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. We see within the life of Abraham here in Genesis chapter 20 a faith that is working in the wrong direction. Right? It's faith in himself, in his view of himself, in his need to work within this particular situation and circumstance to bring about good. We see in Genesis chapter 20 a de-elevation of Abraham's view of God, and we see a lack of true care and concern for all other parties that are a part of this story. God says in verse, um, where is it? It was I that kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. In verse 6, we find out that Abimelech, right, that his lack of action entering into increased sin with Sarah is a result of God's goodness and grace, right? That if not for God's gracious intervention, that Abimelech would have just, just naturally entered into the desires of the flesh and brought more sin upon himself. Abimelech claims innocence in this situation. But even the innocence that he claims is a result of God's compassion. Right? Even the innocence that he claims is a result of God's kindness. It's a result of God's mercy. He says, if we continue on, then God said to him in the dream, I know that you've done this in integrity of heart. I've kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Verse 7. Now then return to the man, uh, the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will Pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. There's a snowballing effect that's taking place here. The sin in Genesis 20 begins with this one lie. And then we find that this one lie escalates, right? And then we find that if not for a course correction, that it will only serve to escalate further. There's a warning from the Lord. Let's look at Abimelech's response and how it informs our understanding of the connection between view of self, view of God, and view of others. Because we've got, we can't forget about this. How does the, our view of others fit into this? We're going to talk about that in just a second. Abimelech gets it. Let's look at verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, I want us to pause for just a moment. Within this story, I want us to consider who is it that looks more um, like uh, a, a follower, a confessor of God. 
Abimelech or Abraham? Abimelech, right? Abimelech looks more like, it's very similar to what you observe in the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, we meet a very disobedient prophet who receives a word and instruction from the Lord to go to Nineveh and to call out against the sin of this very city. Only, only Jonah has real issue with the Ninevites. And as a result, he seeks to flee the instruction of the Lord, sailing instead the opposite direction. He uh, becomes a passenger on this particular ship, which then in, uh, experiences great calamity on the seas as a result of Jonah's sin. And we see them freaking out. They, they're losing it. And we observe through that scene the Lord bringing about good. We see a people who, as the story begins to, at least in that chapter, um, come to a resolution, worship the Lord, and we let, are left going. The sailors look more like the redeemed, and Jonah looks more like the pagan. In this story, it's a very similar, it's a very similar type thing. Right? Abimelech hears from the Lord of the sin of Abraham and his part now in that, he hears from the Lord how he ought to respond, and then he makes haste to respond as the Lord has instructed. There seems to be, from the king, this recognition of these elements, the character and nature of God. How do we know? Well, he receives this word from the Lord, and then in verse 8, early the next morning, he calls his servants and he tells them these things. You guys have got to hear this. Like, we've got some, some real problems that need to be resolved. And the men were, what? Very much afraid. Their view of God appears to be up here, while, um, while Abraham's view of God appears to be more down, down here. Do we see how that's working? Are we together so far? Yes? Amen. Let's continue on. Abimelech says in verse 9, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Now in verse 11, we see the root, right, of um, the emotion that leads Abraham into this elevated view of self and this the elevated view of God. However, from Abimelech, we see this recognition that Abraham has not only elevated his view of self while de-elevating his view of God, but he has de-elevated his view of others. Hey, as a result of your sin, great trouble, right? Great Calamity, great trial in the lives of myself and my people. What have I done to you to bring this about? We see um, Abraham being not a great neighbor. This is the epitome of what being not a great neighbor looks like. Right? He, he seems to have very little care and very little concern for what is to happen to this particular group of people. He is more concerned as to what is to happen with him. Here's what I want to say about this. I want us to consider for a moment our view of sin and its effects. 
is Abraham confused as to whether or not he is acting sinfully or if he's acting righteously? We don't know altogether, right? But we would assume, right, that Abraham is aware that he is twisting the truth in a very similar fashion as we have observed earlier on in the life of Abraham. This isn't the first time that we're observing this. This isn't the first twisting of truth, even in terms of his relationship with Sarah. He confesses that much in Genesis chapter 20. Anytime we go, you say that you're my sister, and I'll say that I'm your brother. This issue has been worked out once already. And so as we come here, we go, okay, yeah, this is something that Abraham is aware is, is undesirable. It's an undesirable response. But he does it anyway. And what we find out is that sin affects not just Abraham, but it affects many individuals that are a part of this story. We observe a, a lack of faith. And we say this from a New Testament perspective, that a, that a lack of faith from a Christian perspective does not limit its impact on our own personal experience or existence. That sin doesn't exist in a vacuum. That's what we're saying. Right? That sin doesn't exist in a vacuum. That Abraham might have adopted this idea that this sin will only affect me. Only we find out that that is not, that is not the case. What we observe in Genesis 20 from Abraham is an understanding of sin that if embraced says clearly and concisely one of these two things. Number one, that my sin affects only me or my sin affects others. I just don't care that much. It has to say one of those two things. If, if we live our lives this way, in a similar way as we're observing from Abraham here, right, willing to, to lie, not really considering its repercussions, willing to sin, not really willing to consider the ripple effects and its effect on other people, then we are saying that either we believe our sin exists in a vacuum. Right? That is to say that, that our sin exists in this box and it affects no one outside, or we concede that sin affects um, many parties involved, only we don't care, <laughs> right? Like, my sin is, is, is worth its effect on those around me. What a serious statement, right? What we want to do is we want to see a reform of this idea. Right? We want to understand sin and its true effects on others, on the world around us, on those that love and care for us, on those that we don't know. Sin affects. Do you have any experience with that? Or can you think of specific moments and, and instances in which you willfully sin and those effects are felt by many around you who may not even have been and probably most oftentimes aren't, a part of the behavior of the sin. As a view of self is elevated, view of God goes, goes down, and as a result, view of others goes, goes down. That's not where we want to be, okay? In fact, let's just, um, let's do this. This is not where we want to be. This is where we want to be.
we want to adopt a position that has this elevated view of God, a biblical view of God, that leads into like a, a de-elevated view of self, that is, um, a willingness to confess our weakness, our foolishness, and our sin, looking to the Lord for strength and wisdom and righteousness, that will then lead us to an elevated view of others. Jesus says, um, as he as he just as he brings the law, as he brings it all together, he says that his people are to um, to love God and to love their neighbor. Right? What we observe here is a um, is a failure to love one's neighbor. Right? There's this desire for self preservation that supersedes. Faith working actively in a right direction. And so what we need to say then is, okay, what we need to say is this. In this situation, let's step back into Genesis chapter 20 for a moment. Everything works out well for all parties involved. Yes, right? Um, Abimelech goes to the king, right? Or Abraham goes, Abimelech goes to Abraham, right? And there's this conversation that, that goes on. And then there is an exchange of goods, um, and then things are set by, back on their right trajectory. But that's not always the case, okay? Here we see that. But in our lives, sometimes there is cause for fear and stress and anxiety. And if we move forward in faith, there is a great possibility that we will experience Difficulty, right? And, and hardship. Have you ever experienced one of these moments, right? Where you, you know that, that moving forward and responding as the Lord would have us to respond is going to then naturally result in a certain degree of discomfort, maybe even great discomfort. Have you ever experienced this before? But we don't say that, all right, well, if we do this, then everything will turn out um, ultimately for our good as the world perceives and defines it. Right? What we say is that God is good and that he is faithful and that we are desiring a faith actively working in the right direction come what may. No matter what difficulty, no matter what hardship, no matter what persecution might result from a faith actively working in the right direction. This past week, perhaps you saw, there was a, a young man who um, visited um, a, a particular island of a particular people known as the Senegalese. Did you guys see this? Right? Um, young guy, I think he was like in his maybe mid to late 20s, 26 maybe I want to say. I read the article a couple of times as it began to come out. Anyway, um, this guy was a Christian missionary. Um, and he, um, man, the Lord just gave him like this, what seems to be, based on everything that, that I've been able to read, like a real heart for the glory of Christ and the good of sinners. Right, a real sound theological perspective of the realities of eternity. 
right? That there is, there is this residing with the king forever or there is um, an eternal separation from the king forever. Heaven and hell. And, and as a result of a strong conviction, these realities, he oftentimes found himself in, in difficult or precarious situations. And one of those, this past week, led ultimately to his death. It was a very Jim Elliott type of, of, uh, of, of exchange. He visited the island of this of this um, of this Indian people group that had been altogether all ostracized from the world. They'd been um, just left alone. In fact, they're almost protected. Um, don't go to the island. Don't go visit them. We're just going to let these guys kind of do what they do. And as a result of his going to the island to share with these people the gospel, he was killed by these people. Very similar to Jamelia. Who's who's familiar with Jamelia and his story? Yeah, very, very similar. And you go, wow, okay, well, that's incredible. But here's what makes it altogether more incredible from my perspective is that there was this clear understanding that that an obedience and a commitment to mission going to this very particular and dangerous people might result in his death. How do we know that? Well, because he left a journal entry. Journals. Notes, they are so valuable. He left a journal entry, and in this particular entry, he said, if I die, and I'm paraphrasing here, don't be mad at God and don't be mad at these people. This was to his, like, his family and um, his friends, I would assume. I'm not, I'm not sure who it was all to. Why do we lean into that story? Right? Why do we tell that story? Why do we consider that story? Well, because here's the deal, that being a Christian will oftentimes result in you experiencing and encountering difficulty as a result of living your faith, being missional, right? Living mission. In fact, it's even hard to say living missional because we just so often talk about living mission, like living mission. This is what we do. This is what it looks like to, to embrace an active faith, right, that we, that we lean into and we embrace, even when these, right, this desirable result in hardship for you and I. There's an elevated view of God. It doesn't mean that we believe that we will always be safe. In fact, we believe that oftentimes we will be unsafe, but that God is great and compassionate and that he keeps us. Even if he doesn't keep us here, that he keeps us, right? That he, that he holds us, that we are safe in him as we embrace difficult and dangerous circumstances in our life. We have a, a de-elevated view of self while at the same time having an elevated view of self. We really just have a proper view of self. We understand that we are created in the image of God and that he created us to live a certain way and that we can't live that way on our own. But as we look to him, right, and, we, and we trust in him, and we embrace gospel transformation for our lives, as we are called into the flock, our hearts are changed, and our desires are changed, and a spirit takes up residence within us that enables us to begin living the types of lives that God desires for his people to live. Do we get this? Even if it's difficult, right, even if it produces hardship, we have an elevated view of others. Do we say that we um, see ourselves as less important than other people? Are we less important than other people? No. But we, we, we see ourselves that way. We say you are more important. Right? Others are more important. Neighbors are more important. We, we serve and we, and we share and we, we love and we seek the glory of God and the good of other people. 
even when it produces a certain degree of hardship, which it will. And so, we see faith active in a wrong direction. We see sin's effects and a right response, the undesirable and the desirable, followed by, finally, God's extension of undeserved mercy and grace. We've, we've touched on it already, but let's draw it out explicitly. To Abimelech, God says, I kept you from sinning. And to Abraham, who in spite of his sin is recognized still as a prophet. A recipient of God's special grace. This is the emphasis from the New Testament for Abraham. Not his sin, but his faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8. The author of Hebrews writes. Consider what's being emphasized here and what is not mentioned. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Hebrews 11 is an exposition of faith from the life of Abraham. It begins with his leaving Ur, Ur for an unknown promised land, staying in the land even in times of great um, danger, believing that God could give him a son when he and Sarah were past their age for having children, and being willing to offer up Isaac, counting that God could raise him from the dead. Not a single time over the course of this snapshot of the life of Abraham does his sin or shame surface. Why? grace because Abraham is forgiven in Christ Jesus and so when we experience and encounter embrace seasons of difficulty right followed by disobedience does that ultimately affect the way that the Lord sees us no Right? It doesn't. Why? Well, because we are in Christ. Right? Like we are, we are buried with Christ. Like we are raised in Christ. It's not our righteousness. It's his. Right? It's his commitment and it's his faith in the plan of the Father that we cling to even in seasons of difficulty and disobedience. Sin and, and shame are forgiven. They are gone. Whereas there was once hostility and death, there uh, is now, through the resurrection of Jesus and his absorption of sin and shame, adoption, right? peace and forgiveness. As one Matt Carter puts it, peace is who God is. And making peace is one of the primary things that God does. We said it in the beginning. We said it as we observed baptism this morning. Our death is over. There is mercy and there is grace. And so the question that you and I need to ask ourselves as we begin to, to close Genesis chapter 20 is this. 
How does our understanding of who God is drive decisions that we make? How does our understanding of who God is drive decisions that we make? What does it look like if we, if we flip this and it begins to look more like this in the case of Genesis chapter 20? Right? In specific seasons and instances in our own lives, what does it look like to embrace a, a de-elevation of our view of self and what we need to do and embrace this sound, biblical, stout view of God that informs and shapes and drives the way that we live our lives, practices that we embrace even in the face of potential difficulty. That is the question. How does our understanding of God, how does our understanding of who God is, drive decisions that we make and practices that we embrace even in the face of of potential difficulty. Where do we go as a source of of confidence for the Christian life? We go, um, as we do each week, to to the cross. We we go uh, to the cross and, and we corporately come to the table and we observe Christ's broken body and his spilled blood. For his people, we observe Christ's entering into creation, condescending and embracing struggle and emotion, persevering, remaining sinless and perfect only to give himself as the only suitable sacrifice so that you and I could know forgiveness for these moments of elevation. We don't save ourselves. Or we don't sustain ourselves. We look to God. We embrace a, a stout view of God and we seek to live our lives in response to that. So is that, where, is that where we are? Is that where you are? Are there instances in your own life, even now, in which there is sin that is running rampant in your life as a result of a de-elevated view of God? Is God sweet? Is your sin bitter? These are realities that we need to wrestle with this morning. These are realities we need to to wrestle with as we come to the table. Confessing, confessing elevated views of self where needed and embracing the sovereignty of God for our lives in every aspect, in every area. Let's respond as we come to the table by doing that.